On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are joined for the brightest conversation in Hamilton Radio by Graham Mackay, the outstanding editorial cartoonist for the Hamilton Spectator. We're going to be talking about the local election and about Andrea Horvath and about drawing and art and free speech and should a prince, even a prince, throw his family under the bus in a memoir. Lots of other stuff too. Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. It has been a busy week. I don't know if you've been following what's going on in the news. It has been, uh, it's been busy. It has been, well, we had an election on Monday. I mean, that makes it busy naturally. But it's also been a little, well, strange and full of unusual goings on since then. So there will be no shortage of things to get to today, I assure you. So as I said on Twitter, when I mentioned who my guest was today, I said, just warm up your TV dinner or grab yourself a beverage because you're going to be here for a while once we get going. Uh, He is the outstanding award-winning national newspaper award nominee, multiple times editorial cartoonist of the Hamilton Spectator. His name is Graham Mackay. He joins me now. Graham, how are you today? I'm doing fine. And thank goodness it's Friday. Thank goodness it's Friday. Thank goodness the election. And thank goodness, you know, before we get started, thank goodness you're home. Not that I was worried you were going to make it home, but you, over the last week, just before the election, got to do one, go to one of the places that has been on my bucket list for a long, long, long time. It's about in another two or three weeks, it's about to become relevant again. You just, you just returned from Dealey Plaza. Yeah. In, in downtown Dallas. I was there, uh, well, my wife uh, was at a conference um, this past weekend and, and during the last part of last week. And, um, yeah, I just sort of went with her. I actually drew two of the cartoons that appeared in the Hamilton Spectre from the pool side of our hotel, actually, in, um, in Grapevine, Texas, which is a suburb of uh, Dallas. And, yes. Technology is amazing, isn't it, that you can do that? And yes, I went to Daily Plaza, which is probably the most famous thing in Dallas, the the place where uh, President John F. Kennedy was assassinated. Yes, and it was so. This has been on my bucket list for a long, long time. I've never made it there. I, I hope to one day. But the the part of this, and there's a museum, and I want to get into some of that in a second because I mean I think a lot of people still find this fascinating. But the, the part to me that I find most, and when I say hilarious, I mean, obviously, there's nothing funny about a president being assassinated, so it's the wrong word, but that they actually have placed a giant X on the road for X marks the spot where he was shot. I, somehow, I don't know why I find that weird. Yeah, there's actually three X's on the road. Oh. Uh, there's, there's two shots that, that went off, one, uh, one that hit the president and one that hit uh, Connolly. Uh, the the Texas governor who was riding in the limo. And then there's a final shot that's a few feet um, going away from the city. And that's the the one that actually killed the president. Um, And and these are actually, they were painted on not by uh, the city. These are, these have just been kept up by the conspiracy theorists who have continually just painted the X on the road. Oh, oh, yeah. I thought this was a, an official government city ordinance that there is an X on that spot. Well, this makes more sense. But on the flip side, I guess the city doesn't mind the surge of tourists because apparently this is the, as you say, this is the place. If you're in Dallas, there's a few places to go, but this is one of them. Yeah, and according to the people that we talked to in Dallas, it is a nonstop. It's you know, 
there's a, a constant flow of tourists there. You, you could pass by at three o'clock in the morning, according to our taxi driver, and th- there will be a mob of people just, you know, taking their selfies. And, you know, it's a very, it's a, it's a regular, um, it's a very busy uh, way to get in and out of the city. So it's, it's, you know, you, well, while we were there, uh, we saw many people running across the, the street. I did the same thing, actually. <laughs> and you hear a constant uh, sound of, of, of honking horns and things like that, because people, I'm, I'm sure there's probably a list of other people whose lives have been lost along that stretch just by running across and being hit by cars. I, I should actually look that up. Be- yeah, maybe the X wasn't for the, where the bullets were. It was for the <laughs> where the pedestrians have been hit. But it's, I mean, it is, I, I, I look, as I said, it's on my bucket list to go. I absolutely understand on the one hand, and why it's a place where people would want to go because it is, I mean, uh, arguably in the top five historic spots in the States. I, I would, you know, for obviously all the wrong reasons, but clearly it is. But on the other hand, it's still, even though I want to go, strikes me as odd that f- almost 60 years now later, all right. the site yeah, of someone being shot in the head is still the place where people would congregate. Right. And, you know, and there's a museum there, too. It's called the Sixth Floor Museum. And it's, you know, it's right there in the Texas School Book Depository. And apparently the whole building is going to be turned into uh, a museum de- devoted to Dallas. And, um, yeah, it's it's just taken on a an attraction of its own. And it's not in a particularly nice part of the city either. I mean, there's a few old buildings, but it's actually sort of revitalized uh, sort of a, a part of the city that's been in decline. Uh, and, and now, you know, you, there's restaurants around there and stuff like that. So it caters to the, you know, the, the heavy stream of tourism that, that comes to that area. It, you know, it, and again, it's, it is interesting to me that it has remained, I mean, it, and again, not surprisingly, I suppose, on the one hand, that it's remained such a, uh, like most people, when I said Dealey Plaza off the top before I said Dallas or anything else, I assume that, what would you say, 75% of people at least would know what that means instantly? Yeah. And they yet, know if who I Dealey were, is, but uh, I learned who Dealey was. He's actually a, a former editor of the Dallas Morning News. I bet a lot of oh, people is that right? know that. Yeah. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. But if you say Dealey Plaza, I would say, again, probably I would guess at least 75% of people immediately knew what we were talking about. If I were to say the Lorraine Motel, site of another incredibly right. important and incredibly sad and incredibly historically relevant assassination, that of Martin Luther yeah. King, right. I don't think you'd get close to 75%. They would no. know that Martin Luther King was killed. They may know what city it happened in, but I don't know that the connection is the same. I don't know. I know actually the Lorraine Motel has actually been turned into a um, a museum. I, I like that's another place I'd like to go to. Um, yeah, it's just these these monuments where you know the the ends of great lives of you know American history ended, and. I guess they just become these monuments for people to, to go and visit. I mean, they're, you, you know, you can go to your monuments in Washington and, and they're very nice and everything. The Lincoln Memorial, the Jefferson Memorial, the, the MLK uh, monument in, in Washington, they're, they're nice. But I, I guess there's this sort of natural inclination for, for people to go to, to the scene of, of where the thing happened. And maybe there's a spiritual connection or something there. I don't know what it is, but... Um, well. 
it there's always, something about it will always there, attract people. I think these these places. Yeah, there's something about being at the exact site. I mean, years ago, I was driving through the states. I was between jobs. I didn't, you know, it was anyway, and. You know, I went for reasons that I don't even know. I went to the site of Woodstock. I could have gone and looked at a, watched a movie or something, but it was just kind of cool. I was nearby. So let's do it. It's just, it's cool when something is as big a deal. And certainly the JFK assassination was as big a deal. I guess the going to the very place and seeing it is, um, and I wasn't even alive for the JFK assassination, but absolutely, it's, as I say, on the bucket list. Graham, as we said, Monday was election day. And this was, well, I mean, there were different thoughts going into this one, um, whether or not this was a big deal election. But the, the theory seemed to be, yeah, this was a big deal election. Everybody wanted to vote people out and clear house at City Hall. And there was great appetite for change. And this was going to just be the impetus for this surge of voting to try and make this happen. And our voting turnout actually went down from 2018, which was not very high to begin with. 2018, that was the LRT one, was 38%. This was about 35%. One in three people who has the right to vote bothered to do so. Do you have any theories on why we are apparently so, I don't know what the word is, just uh, apathetic? about voting and about democracy and about politics and that kind of thing these days? Any theories? It's very depressing. Um, I, it could be, and I don't know if many people have brought this up, it's just the pandemic might have been a reason why um, people haven't been engaged. If you look back on the past three years, I mean, I, I know this just as a cartoonist, uh, there hasn't been a lot of fodder for me to chew on. I know there's been, you know, ongoing issues uh, with homelessness and that sort of thing and, and, and the racism um, thing and, and just the, the, the vaccinations and, and, the, and the stuff happening at City Hall with that. But it really has been kind of a, a, a dull kind of time. Like the LRT issue sort of went off the rails, you could say. Uh, nothing kind of happened with that. Constructions went, you know, stopped and and so I think we all just kind of cocooned and, and there wasn't a big giant issue. I mean, and I guess housing was parsed as the big issue of the election, but you know, how, how that actually affects is not the, the, the homeowners themselves, the taxpayers, it's the people who are, you know, the, the rentals and, and the people who are without homes that, that, that concerns more people. So is it, it, voting top of mind for them? Probably not well, like it is housing is a in the suburbs. Graham, housing is a tough one to even make. While it's incredibly important in the city, it's really hard to make housing as a great electoral issue because it's not like you're voting. I want housing or I don't want housing. The LRT was I want the LRT. I don't want the LRT housing. Everybody wants housing. So it's a question of you're voting on incredibly complex and nuanced and different strategies for how to get there that, quite honestly, I don't think most people, myself included, truly understand what each of the candidates' position is on this. It's really hard to say, oh, I, you know, I firmly believe that Andrea Horvath's housing policy is much better than Keenan Loomis's housing policy because... Mm-hmm. Like so, so that one it's hard to really make that a huge issue because we don't really know what we're talking about. We just want more houses built. Yeah, uh, so and even to this, I don't know what the strategy was for 
for Horvath. I knew that uh, Loomis had one, and uh, I, I can't tell you what Bertina had. I mean, I think he, he babbled something about it, but I think Loomis sort of had a strategy in mind, the 50,000 thing. I, I didn't exactly know how he was going to get there, but um, yeah, it was it was all over the place and a lot of head-scratching as to how you know, a municipality can actually do this on their own. You need all levels of government, and it's a very complicated kind of thing to, to get at. And, and, okay, uh, so I don't want to be preach. I don't want to be preachy about this, and it's going to sound preachy, I suspect, but it's not the intent. But you know, it's like your dad saying, "Well, you know, children in other countries would wish to have those asparagus you're leaving on your plate." Well, it's kind of the same thing that there are people in other countries that would literally die for the right to be able to vote in an election, to have a free election. Right. And maybe we've just gotten so used to it. Maybe we've become immune to it because we don't think that it can change anything. I don't know. But it just, it, it always strikes me as, I don't expect 100% voting, but it always mm-hmm. strikes me that more than one in three people would bother with something well, that's going to affect how much you pay in taxes, what the rules are in your city, what you know, all these kind of things that are going to have a direct impact on your life. Surely you'd want to have a say on that. Yeah, it's, I, I guess they're, they're, you don't have the glitz and glamour that you get on the federal level. And, you know, I guess you get a, a little bit more in the provincial. But we, we saw even in the provincial, it was way down. It was like 43 percent, if I recall. Yes, but this is this is a trend that's not happening in Hamilton. Actually, Hamilton fared better than a lot of the surrounding communities. It was, it was some of these other areas. Like I, I looked at Oshawa, Oshawa had like eighteen point something percent. It was wow. abysmal. Wow. Um, and other areas like Kitchener and Waterloo were well into the what the mid twenties. So this is a yeah. phenomenon that's happening all across the province, and I'm sure it's happening you know well beyond Ontario's border. It's just it's just I don't know. It's just, are, are we just becoming more globalized in our, our outlook and, and just less caring about what happens in our own communities? It, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Maybe. And, and, and again, uh, you're right. You're 100% right that, I mean, Ontario was down considerably, as you say, uh, uh, Kitchener was 20%. I, I didn't even know about Oshawa. That's even more staggering. Mm-hmm. But I... Yeah. As I say, I really thought that with this election, with as much as we heard about this election and this desire for change and this need for change and this groundswell of wanting change, I, I now, t- to be fair, when seven councillors, including the mayor, decide they're not running again, change was already happening, I suppose, before anyone cast the ballot. So maybe that took some of the, some of the kindling off the fire. I don't know. But still, I thought, all right, if we're if we truly say we want this change, surely everyone's going to come out and make this change happen. But it seems like we do a lot of talking, but not a lot of voting. Right, and I think I became a little uh, despondent after the 2018 election, which I thought would galvanize the entire city, since LRT was something that sort of everyone, at least the suburbs, you know, you, you knew was opposed to it, and then the people downtown were, you know, more in favor. Of it, and I thought that would bring out the vote. But what was it? Thirty-eight percent. Like that yep. was a depressing uh, tally. I, you know, I, I thought it was actually going to be less than than thirty-five. So I guess there's a little cause for a little joy there. But um, well, what I, issue in this city, Graham? In modern Hamilton history, what issue potentially stands to be more impactful on the city than the LRT? 
I mean, the stadium was a big deal, but it was not really affecting an entire well, swath of the city. It was emotional. But what 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 issue is a bigger deal than the LRT? And we could only get thirty eight percent. Well, who knows? But I, I can tell you right now, we we all see what's happening around us with interest rates, mortgage rates going way up, and you know, inflation going sky high. Um, it's, you know, I, I think the Trudeau government has done what it can to alleviate the pain with lower income people. But for the rest of the folks, we're looking at a very cold winter and our, our mortgages are going up and affordability is an issue. And I, I didn't hear a lot about, well, what are we going to do about that? Like The only thing that the government can do now is either raise or lower your taxes. And the big issue with our city here is on the area rating thing. And uh, there, there are people in the suburbs who are, are are very likely to see their tax bills go up because you can pretty much guarantee that area rating is going to be a thing of the past by the end of this council. By the end of this council? How about by the end of next month? <laughs> I mean, not quite, but it, a budget process starts in January. It'll usually yeah. wrap up, I think, by April. Uh, if if it's not gone by the end of April, I will be shocked. Right. Well, I will the be worst shocked. It's going to come out in in the next few months, obviously, because, you know, people, people have short memories and they're not going to do this, you know, in, in year three of the council. So, you know, buckle your seatbelts because we're going to get some pretty dreary news, at least for some of the suburban voters when... Mm. They see their, their tax bills go up. It's going to happen. We were talking about the election here in Hamilton, provincially, but the municipal election in Hamilton and how the voting numbers are down. Well, let's let's move a little further because you had mentioned some things, one of the things anyway, that is going to be facing this council, which is area rating and other decisions that they're going to be facing. Interestingly, um, we're, we're, well, yesterday, about 48 hours after being elected, long before even being sworn in as the new councillors. Already some stuff started happening. A number of councillors signed an open letter saying they weren't going to talk to the spectator because they were upset with a story that ran. Um, it's a long story. People can go look it up. <laughs> It'll take half the show to try and explain the whole thing. And Anyway, um, it, it's. It, I talked to, well, I know for a fact, and I've talked to some other councillors who have said they don't support this. They don't stand with this. And I'm looking at this thinking, we haven't even sworn in the new council. And the whole issue, which was supposed to be about divisiveness, getting rid of divisiveness and getting rid of lack of transparency and all that, like we're we're 72 hours out from the election and already it seems we've moved right back to where we started, haven't we? Well, I guess it was a definite uh, shot across the bow to the main media outlet in this city, the Helen Spectator. Um, yeah, it's times are changing, and and this is a new crew of people coming in. Uh, I, I think there was one um, member of council, uh, Nirinder Nan, I think was on that list, but as an incumbent, was, yes. And there are three in uh, newcomers on that list. Um, so I guess they're, you know, they're they're reacting in an orchestrated way and. I suppose what they represent is the progressive wing of, of this new uh, council that's coming in. There's, there's other people that are coming into council that I don't think are part of this um, progressive movement. So it's, it's interesting how this was orchestrated. 
Um, and maybe we'll find out more about that. But and, and and maybe we'll find out that you know I think in the last um, council we certainly had a team up of Wilson and Narendra Nan and to some extent uh, Denko. Um, will this become like a voting block to to come? Um, because if that's the way it's going to be, then it's going to alienate some of the other um, members of council. And, and, you know, this is supposed to be an independent. People are supposed to be acting independently as councils, not as a block. And I think there's some, some cause for concern if that's what's going to happen in the next four years. That's well, we don't division. We don't as a as a as a rule, as a law in this province, in some provinces they do. But in this province, we do not have party, party. politics in municipal politics for the very reason you just said we don't have voting blocks each ward is an independent body of itself that is going to be something i think that is worth watching to see if this becomes a a voting block and right. if, if that's the case uh, i don't know what that means i mean there's nothing that nothing illegal about it there's nothing anyone's going to do to stop it but i'm not sure that th- well, maybe some who cast ballots were hoping that would be the case, but I think a lot of others might say, well, I didn't really vote for five or four or six councillors. I voted for one. No. So we'll see how that goes. But it's, I think it's a very legitimate question you raise. Well, and, you know, I, even the incoming mayor, uh, Andrew Horvath, sort of poo-pooed the idea that she'd be bringing in her NDP partisanship. Uh, she said, you know, after, I, I think he, she even said in the debate, you know, after the hockey game, when the sparring is done, uh, Premier Ford and I can get together and, and celebrate. And she's bringing that to, to the new council. And I like that. Um, you know, we do have councillors that are there who have represented um, constituencies in a, in a partisan way. Brad Clark is one of them. Um uh, uh, McMeekin, who is a liberal, Brad Clark, a conservative, they, they kind of shed that partisanship. Uh, Brad Clark has, has certainly shown that he's, he's, he's not like an arch conservative guy from the Harris. He's voted both era. ways. He's voted at times. People have accused him of being a staunch liberal and at other times they've accused him of being a staunch conservative. That's, that, that's, that's pretty balanced out if you're getting slagged for both sides. Right. So I, I think we can anticipate that Andrew's going to keep her word. And she's she's not going to act like this, you know, socialist premier of, of 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 Hamilton or something, you know, and and vote with this progressive block. You know, that's not the way it works in this province, and it's not the way it works in Hamilton. But who knows? Anything can happen. It, it is worth pointing out that Andrea Horvath did not sign this open letter. Um, just in case anyone was wondering, she was not one of the ones who signed it. And, uh, um, you know, I know that some people listening are going to say, well, you're biased. You work for the spectator. So you're obviously against it. Well, if you want to call me biased, if you want to call Graham biased, that's fine. But I do think that this was a particularly poor idea. And I think mm-hmm. it was wise of Andrea Horvath, especially as the mayor, not to latch on to this right off the bat. I think this is, as I say, we just went through a whole election because the council was talked about as being so dysfunctional and so divided and so unable to work together that we wanted something new and fresh. And we're not even four days out from the election and already we're seeing signs that things are being divided. And I don't know that that's helpful. I don't know that that's helpful. In fact, I would argue it's entirely not helpful. No, well, no. I, I think um, 
they might have uh, gone a little bit overboard. These are younger people. These are fresher faces. They're going to find out that, you know, communication is a very vital role of being a politician at any level. And there is really, you know, there's multiple outlets of media, but the big one is the spectator. And if you alienate, if you, if you don't go the spectator, if you use your Twitter feed or, you know, what a lot of politicians are doing now, um, just going on their feeds and getting their, their lines out, you're going to get your bubble. You're going to communicate to your bubble, but there's a whole other constituency out there that needs to hear from your, the counselor what, what their thoughts are and everything. And a lot of them read the newspaper, and that's where they get their news, not through Twitter. So I, I, I think they're going to find out that they, they actually need the specter. And you know what? They can carry on the, a boycott, but it's only going to hurt themselves. And quite frankly, I don't think a lot of people really care if they boycott the, the specter or not. They're just going to hurt themselves. And I say this just as a guy that works for the specter. I just draw the cartoons, you know. And if, if you're not if you're not going to be part of the, the story, then you're not going to get the exposure. That's that's all there is to it. It's. Um... Yes. Uh, look, you, anyone can choose. Anyone is free to talk to whomever they want to. And if these particular counselors don't want to talk to the spectator, that is entirely their choice. There's nothing illegal about that. That is entirely up to them. The the they can talk to other media outlets in town. They have other options. So that that's that's entirely fine. But as as you say, um, there are people who get their news. From the paper, just as there are people who get their news from CHML, just as there are people who get their news from CHCH. Yeah, and as, as just as someone who has worked in the newsroom by various columnists and that sort of thing, I know that you know in the past, counselors they get very upset with certain columnists for what they wrote, and then they'll go on a little boycott. Really, two weeks, <laughs> <laughs> and then and then guess what? Their little boycott ends because they have to get the message out. And, and so yeah, but like this one's different. Of, of, of liking and hating. So this is different, though, Graham, because those times, and believe me, I've been there. Those times, <laughs> the person speaks to the columnist or the writer or the editor and says, "I'm mad. I'm not talking," but they don't make it a public declaration. No. So now, for this group to change their mind uh, with the paper not backtracking and based on what i read from our editor paul burton um doesn't sound the paper is not apologizing there was nothing that was improper susan claremont and kate mccullough who wrote the piece are excellent excellent journalists award-winning journalists absolutely so this now means there is a line in the sand that either the if the paper is not going to walk it back and you're one of these people who signed on to this you're either going to have to say all right I'm backing off or it stays there. And so we'll see where that one goes. But I do think it was a, I believe people are entitled to different opinions, but I believe it was a poor, a poorly conceived idea and something that second thought, sober second thought should have been applied to this. And we'll, well see how this thing plays out. Well, they get the cartoons in the paper because uh, they're probably not going to like that. I, I haven't come across very many counselors that like having you know, their caricatures in the paper, because I, I don't show them in a very positive light in most cases. Well, sometimes, but it's often, it is, it is often, well, it's satirical and you must yeah. have a bit of a sense of humor about yourself, a little self-deprecating humor or else that can be stingy. We've been watching and following along and reading and 
catching up on what's been happening at this Emergencies Act inquiry in Ottawa. I don't know how many people are watching every minute of it, but we're certainly aware of the tenor and the the theme and the general sense of it. One of the things, though, that has been that struck me a day or two ago was that we heard that. And I don't know the exact words I'm paraphrasing, but regardless of what happens here, the NDP with Jagmeet Singh seem to be not planning on holding the government, even if the even if the report were to come back and say the government abused their powers. I don't know if that's what the report's going to say, but that there's probably not going to be any action to hold the prime minister or the government to account that they will continue to work with them as they have been as this partner. And we're hypothesizing because, again, we don't know what the report is eventually going to say. But if that was the case, if that ended up happening, I have to ask what would be the point of the federal NDP at this point? If they are simply the party that isn't doing a whole lot other than providing cover and numbers for the government, why in the next election would anyone need to vote for them? Why not, wouldn't you just vote for the liberals? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's it's interesting because I, I, I think with, with what's happening with uh, inflation and everything, they're, they're trying. Well, I, I know Jagmeet Singh came out uh, uh, arguing ag- against the Bank of Canada and, 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 you know, they need to halt the rate increases and that sort of thing. And that is opposed to what, you know, the, the ruling liberals are saying, obviously. So that's a little kink there. But on, on this whole Emergencies Act thing, um, no one's looking at the NDP. It's, they're, they're not really a part of this whole discussion anyway they're just they are basically a prop right now and and it's ensuring the country that this is the way it's going to be for the next two years and so they're basically a piece of wood right now and holding things up and then you hear a few things in the news where they're sort of complaining about the liberals doing this or that but it's 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 really just a self-preservation thing i mean they're pretty i think they're low in the finances right now, um, paying back debt and that sort of thing from the last election, and, and this is for their own survival. Um, but yeah, their, their relevance has sort of um, faded a little bit in, in, in this past several months. Jagmeet Singh is the leader. You don't see him very much. Um, there's there's the, the bench strength on the NDP is nothing like it used to be. I mean, you think of, you go back and you think of even some of the backbenchers who, you, who would support some of the past leaders are I guess it's Charlie Angus. He's probably the, the loudest voice, but the rest of them, I mean, we do hear um, a few things locally from, from Matt Green, but it, it really is uh, a, a sad show for the NDP right now. Again, it's like I understand that the argument might be, well, we're by giving our support to the liberals, we're getting some of our platform put through we wanted the dental plan or we want this or that and they wouldn't do that if it wasn't for us i I suppose but again i go back to my point if you are looking at this from a distance if you're a casual voter and you might have been an ndp voter i would truly wonder whether when the next election rolls around whenever that may be if you look at this and you say man jugmeat really made a strong showing in this last term in office or if you say that looks like a guy who was just so desperate to i don't know what but just vote liberal and you get the exact same thing 
I don't I don't know how you bathe yourself in glory and how you separate yourself from your opposition when you're both on the same left side of the of the aisle politically so you're competing with each other for those votes if you're if you're the same thing I don't know I don't know how you be, I don't know how you think that you gain from that well you know I, I guess the, the, the matter here is that the liberals have shifted left it's not really I think the NDP has stayed where they've traditionally remained uh, and it's just I've done several cartoons on this, this fact that they the, the liberals come in and they rob some of the traditional positions of the NDP you know, um, electoral reform was was one of the torches that they stole from the NDP, and, and look what happened to that. Um, and pharmacare is something that's been shelved, and they obviously can't do anything with that right now. These are things that the NDP, I don't think, foresaw the liberals ever embracing. It just so happens that strategically, this is what Trudeau's been doing. He's he's basically a almost an NDP um, prime minister. Uh, who, who takes up NDP positions. But, you know, Trudeau is going to have to pivot because he knows that he's not making a lot of the centrist liberals very happy with these things. So, um, you know, I, I think the NDP is fine right now where they are. It's the liberals that really have to worry about uh, the, the, the coming election because they're up against a formidable leader, you know, Pierre Polyever, who's clearly on on the on the right side, and hey, you know what? The the pendulum swings, and their time is coming up. It always does. It always happens this way. And the Liberals are going to have to be the ones that move. I don't think it's the NDP. The NDP, the NDP, I think, will always be there. It's it's the Liberals who should be worried at this point. Quick break. Back after this on the Scott Radley Show. Stay with us. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring Graham Mackay back into the conversation today. Uh, as I say, wonderful, outstanding editorial cartoonist of the Hamilton Spectator. Thanks for taking the time this evening. We really do appreciate it. Oh, it's wonderful. Thank you for making me sound like the Muhammad Ali, the greatest of editorial Well, you, you kind of are. You kind of, I mean, look, people in Hamilton should, uh, I know you're not going to say this, but people in Hamilton should be very happy that they have, I think, Canada's best editorial cartoonist working in this city. Because when you compare, truthfully, when you compare, there are some other really good ones around the country, but uh, Graham is at the very, very top of that list. Uh, okay. You know what? You know what? It's a testament to the Hamilton Spectator because most newspapers the size of the Hamilton Spectator don't have editorial cartoonists anymore. So kudos to the Spectator who's <laughs> the paper is getting a lot of bashing right now. Well, they have a satirist. They have an editorial cartoonist. And that's a good thing. I was just well, sent over the news break a map of a poll-by-poll breakdown of the 2022 Hamilton mayoral election. This is a visual map. Now, I'm... Yeah, I thought... Have you seen this map? Yeah, it's uh, it's, it's amazing. It just shows... Well, I'll let you describe it, but it's, it is an amazing thing to look at. Well, assuming we're looking at the same map, this is, again, ward-by-ward, poll-by-poll, who voted for who. And Graham... I know we talked about the election last hour, and I wasn't going to talk about it again per se this hour. But as I say, I just I only saw this during the news break. The old city of Hamilton, the central part, the downtown and the central mountain, mm-hmm. almost exclusively, I'm, I'm looking here, there's, I mean, there might be a polling area or two that didn't, but almost exclusively voted for Andrea Horvath. Yeah. And everything around from 
you know, the Stony Creek up to Glenbrook, Flamborough, Ancaster, Dundas, Waterdown, all in there, with one or two, again, wards not, every one of them voted for Keenan Loomis. Yeah. I mean, this is this is the this is almost a painting of the amalgamated city. And I know amalgamation is a long time ago now, though. But this is this almost looks like here's the old city of Hamilton, and here's what we've added to it with amalgamation: two different colors. It's amazing. Yeah. Well, and I wonder if it's like a donut. It's a classic donut kind of thing, and right in the middle, the the most the darkest hue of. Um, Hordas support is the, is in the dead middle of the downtown of of the city, and then the outlying area is is Loomis. But I I wonder how much the pivot um, Mr. Loomis made at the end of the campaign towards keeping um, area rating uh, had something to do with that. It might have to bring it back to that that topic. No, no, yeah. but uh, it, that's a that's a very valid point because I'm looking again at this map and I can tell you that the areas that are the darkest green and people can find this online uh, somewhere. I'm sure they will, and they'll see it before long somewhere or else. Uh, the darkest areas of green are the ones where pretty much you could say there's very little public transit, and they're going to be told to pay more. I would think area rating would have been a big deal for them that Absolutely. Keenan Loomis said he was going to protect that. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, that is uh, something to keep an eye out for online. It is it is truly a it is truly a fascinating map because it is so stark. There, I mean, with very few exceptions, it is Andrea Horvath in the middle, Keenan Loomis all around. This this the one thing this does, Graham, is shows the challenge that Andrea Horvath will have as mayor, though. Yeah. convincing the people in the green, especially the dark green parts, which were the heaviest voting for Loomis, um, that she is the mayor of the entire city. That that's yeah. I think that's going to be one of the challenges, is that I'm not just the mayor of the downtown. Absolutely. And could I just add something else there? Of course. It was interesting, um, and this is not really having any to do with anything with what you're saying, but there was no, um, no support in any of those areas for, for Bob Bertina. Which was surprising because I, I thought for a former mayor and a guy who was a member of parliament, I thought he would at least have some kind of showing. But what a nosedive that guy made. And, you know, he he, he wasn't the greatest of mayors, but he left a, a, a big mark on the city for the last 20 or so years. And, you know, he longer than you know, that, if you include the radio time he did of, of, of Hamilton politics, he'll go off into the into the sunset with a big defeat on his hands and kind of a sad thing to say on his legacy. Yeah. I mean, longer than 20 years, if 25 years, if you include radio, it's much longer than that, but yes, it's, um, it, 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 I think it, this shows very clearly that in the, as the campaign went along, maybe from the beginning, but as the campaign went along, he kind of got squeezed out and it became a, a, a binary choice between Lumen, Loomis or Horvath. And, uh, and I really thought perhaps that somewhere along the way that he might squeak up the middle. I never thought to win, but I thought, you know, with the older voters who are pretty reliable yeah. voters, usually that the 13 or 14 percent that the polls showed earlier on that he might get. I thought that would oh, he might hit 20 or 25. Mm-hmm. Still not win, thought, but do thought, better. But no, at not at all. Stony Creek, he would get he would get more votes, but that, that didn't show at all. No. And, and some in the outlying areas as well. 
All right, let's go to Andrea Horvath for a second since we mentioned her. Uh, your job as editorial cartoonist will almost certainly over the next four years involve at times drawing Andrea Horvath. So how does an editorial cartoonist tackle Andrea Horvath? What is the – I always ask you this when we talk about elections. What is the defining characteristic when you start to draw Andrea, Andrea Horvath? Everyone's got something that identifies them that people will immediately go, oh, that's Andrea. What is it about her that you start with? Wow. Um, well, that's, the thing is about Andrea is that she, she and I basically came onto the scene publicly at the same time. In 1997, I, I did a little bit of uh, a lookup. In 1997, she ran um, in one of the federal provincial elections she lost. And then she became a counselor in 1997, and that's when I started my job at the Hamlet Spectator. So I've basically been drawing her for, for the past 25 years. Yeah, yeah. Because there's never been a break for her. She's always been in some political position at one time or another. She jumped to the provincial level, what, in 2006 or so, and then she became the leader. So, um, you know, before she, well before she became the provincial politician that made her famous across the, Ontario... I had been drawing her for, for quite some time, eight years or so. So, you know, I, I can go back to our 20s. When <laughs> we were in our 20s, because that's when I started. I guess she's a little bit older than me. But um, for her, I, I guess, um, you know, she she's an attractive woman, and it's very hard to, to draw women to begin with. I mean, she, she doesn't have any, like, extreme, you know, features, uh I think it helped, though, when she did leap to the provincial political area that I could actually see what, how other cartoonists depicted her across the, the, across the province. And um, that certainly helped because she, she, she was a challenge. Now I think I've got her down, but I think it was because I, I could find the examples from other cartoonists to, to sort of get her down. And I, I think I've got her now. Um, and, and I think it's, I can do it in a few strokes, you know, I, she's got some heavy, uh, upper eyes and she doesn't have an extreme nose. It's her hair. Her hair sort of gives it away. She's kind of got that, um, cone shaped blonde head of hair that, that certainly helps. And, um, I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, she, she's, she's sort of, um. I feel a little bit more confident drawing her, but I'll, I'll tell you, it's, she's been a challenge for years. Well, and you and I have talked about this before, and I'm going to ask a question that I've asked you about before, and I, I think I already may know the answer, but is it, do you have to be more delicate in any way when drawing a woman as a politician, even though we would say, hey, you can't treat women any differently. They are politicians like everyone else. I still believe that probably if you were to be as, let's use the word satirical with appearance of a female politician, you might get a lot more flack than if you exaggerated certain features of male politicians. Am I wrong? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I think the fact that I'm a male and I, I, I've been on the heavier side. I, I sort of have been very liberal in how I add weight to certain male politicians. I don't have a problem adding extra pounds to uh, Mr. Ford. Like, I, I think a, a few people have complained to me that, uh, well, you know, you add a lot of weight to to our premier, which is unfair because, you know, uh, our NDP leader or 
the incoming mayor of Hamilton, you know, she's, she's not exactly a skinny spelt person. So, um, I, yes, when you're a cartoonist, you have to be a little bit more delicate if you're a male, um, uh, depicting women. It's just a natural thing. You've got to be very careful. And that's another thing you got to be careful is when you're as a white guy is, is drawing, uh, other races. So it's, something that we've all come to uh, be very careful and cautious about because we'll always get criticized for, for any sort of depiction, but uh, that comes with the territory of being a cartoonist. Graham, let's, let's talk art for a moment. Cause this story, I laughed out loud when I heard this story <laughs> at first that I don't know. I, I, I am not a, I'm not an art critic. Uh, I like art, but I don't pretend that I can, a fully appreciate, especially abstract. I have a really hard time with a lot of abstract that I look at it and I go, well, why was that so hard to make? <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, Ken Danby drawing something so realistic or you cartooning or whomever that I go, oh, I could never do that. But this mm-hmm. art, this piece of art by abstract Dutch painter, Piet Mondrian, and it may be mm-hmm. P.A. Mondrian. I'm not sure how you say his name. Anyway, it has traveled around to various art galleries for the past 75 years, and an art critic has just pointed out that for the entire time it's been on display, it's been upside down. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, it is. And so looking at this piece of art, and again, I don't profess to be an art appreciator like some. It is a white piece of canvas that appears to have red, yellow, and blue tape in straight lines overlapping it, it it looks like an elementary school gym floor where they have lines for all the different sports like a basketball court line a volleyball court line i don't know how you would possibly know that this thing was upside down or right side up but does it say something about the art or the uh, people looking at it if you don't know if a painting is right side up or upside down yeah and i guess the only way that they found out that it was upside down was that there's actually a, a magazine, I think it was Town and Country, and there's a there's a photograph with the actual artist, Mondrian, standing next to the finished painting after he did it. I think it was in the 1940s. And there he is, and he's he's portrayed there with it the upside-down way, the way that he originally wanted it to, to hang. And so I guess when they unpacked the painting at the museum, they... Uh, they <laughs> They put it up the wrong way, and they did that for about 75, 80 years. So, yeah, it's okay. You know, I, I'm I'm a cartoonist, but I I, I didn't go to art school, uh, so I I can't. I'm kind of in the same boat as you, Scott. I I don't I, I can't let's say appreciate a lot of the nuances that are, that are in modern art. I can appreciate a lot of stuff when you go to some of these galleries and you see like these massive canvases of of unique things that you've never seen before. I, I can get a, a big charge out of that. Um, and, and when you go and you read the little didactic and you find out what is actually being expressed by the, by the artist, I, I can get into that. Um, you know, but this is a case of something that has been completely uh, misunderstood for, for many decades. And it's, it's kind of a funny thing. You know, well, oh, um, like there is that painting, and I can't remember the name of it. You might remember it now. That is in the National Gallery of Canada. That yeah, was like yeah, it was yeah. a white canvas, and it had on each side red stripes. 
No, no, I can and, tell you that's Barnett Newman, and I I know the voice of fire. But there you go, voice of fire. Yes, that's it. This was a this was I actually actually a um, a student at the University of Ottawa at the time, and that's when it, when it was um, brought in. And so I found out the whole history of this. This is actually a, a painting that uh, was at the Expo in '67, and so they purchased it. And I remember they made a big hullabaloo about it because they bought it for like uh, I, was it a two million or four million or something like that. And it was outrageous back then. It was, and this would be the late '80s. So a lot of the conservatives and the conservatives were in government at the time were just outraged. How could you spend that much money on a on a painting that a four year old could paint? Because it's, as you say, it's like three stripes of paint: blue, red, and yes, blue. it was not white. I'm pulling it up. I was wrong. It's it's a blue stripe and then an equal width yellow, uh, a red stripe, and then an equal width yeah. blue stripe. It looks like a flag of some, like, small Caribbean island or something that right. they, you know, have made. But I, with- I, remember, I remember the time, because you go, the, I went to the National Gallery, and there was, like, a parade of people that, were, that only were there to see the voice of fire. It actually brought in people that would not normally go to an art gallery. And it, it was like the Mona Lisa at the time. It, it had a crowd of people around it. And I think it still hangs there to this day. But I can tell you, I, I think it's worth a lot more than the four million or whatever they they paid for back in the eighties. I think it's probably you know ten times that amount now. Barnett Newman, he's a he's a famous painter. But well, yeah, and and okay, so I, I get famous painter, all that kind of stuff. I I, yeah. I I understand that he's famous and everything, but I look at this and I do think to myself. It is a painting of three stripes, and I know you can tell me all day long, well, the deep hidden meaning of this is the, you know, the conflict of man versus nature in an environmental activist group facing, you know, blah, 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 blah. It's three lines. You've got a paintbrush, you get a roller and two buckets of paint and a piece of canvas, and every single person alive could have done this. To me, and I know, I'm Graham, I know I'm just being a rube. And not appreciating modern art, but to me, the one of the dividing lines between good art and not good art is: could I do it? And if I could do it, it's not good art. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> and it's also uh, someone coming up with a concept for the first time that no one has thought about, like you know, urinals on the walls. And there's a there's an artist by the tra- by the name of Tracy Emin. You should look her up one day. She she is one of the most hated artists in, in Great Britain, and, and she's famous for a, a piece called My Bed, which is basically a, a, an unmade bed where she hung out with. In, she, it's an unkempt bed, basically, and, and the big um, controversial thing is there's a used condom laying about in a bunch of garbage near the bed, and uh, she became famous. This this was this is in an art gallery in somewhere in Britain right now and um, yes it, well there's another one that attention. I'm just yeah. that I'm just looking up right now by Robert Rosenberg which is called white painting in three panels <laughs> it is three panels of white canvas it was in 1951 and this is apparently a big deal he literally did nothing he got three right. ca- maybe well I shouldn't say he did nothing he may have covered the canvas in white paint yeah. <laughs> And we're and this is so again understanding that and I came out right from the beginning and said I am not an expert in art or abstract art or modern art, but there is nobody alive that will ever be able to convince me that that somehow is great art. 
Yeah. No, it's, it's the controversy that comes afterwards, right? It's, you know, a part of the art, like a few years ago, remember the guy put a, a very famous painting through a, a shredder. And that was the art, was the, the act of shredding the, 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 the famous piece of art. I mean, it's, it's all about, the art is not just the actual physical thing, it's the actual act as well, the performance art of it all, you know. Well, I right can now, assure you. The, the art that's making fame right now is, you know, the, um, the Van Gogh paintings, the flower paintings that are being sprayed with tomato juice. Yes, in, in the UK by environmentalists, <laughs> it's it's all it's all performance art now. And that's, well, I can that's assure you that if you drew a cartoon and the paper ran it upside down, <laughs> somebody should be able to tell that it's upside down. Otherwise, uh, you could have it hanging on a wall for seventy five years as a piece of great art, and nobody could even tell the difference. I, I, as I say, yeah. to me, this looks like it's a gym floor from my high my elementary school gym. <laughs> That's what it looks I, like. He he I, previously before before he was an abstract artist, he worked painting gym floors and then decided I can make money on this. No, I think you're very accurate there, Scott. I, I agree totally. Uh, Graham McKay from the Hamilton Spectator with us this evening. And Graham, we saw either today or yesterday. I just saw it today, but it may have come out yesterday that uh, Prince Harry, is he, I guess he's still Prince Harry. Harry is uh, his memoir that is going to be called Spare which is, I guess, a shot at the fact that he is just the the spare heir in the event that his brother, something were to happen to him. Um, his memoir is coming out in January, and there is suggestion, if you read this, that it is going to be, well, there may be some shots taken at the royal family in this one. Uh, they're saying it's unflinching, and they're saying it's a revelation, and they're all, anyway, I mean... It, there is a chance, I don't think, and I think you got $10 million as an upfront for this. They're not going to give someone $10 bucks. I don't care who you are, if you plan to just say nothing and talk about tea parties that were held at Buckingham Palace. They're expecting something that's going to sell books. So, question is this. Whether your family is the royal family or just the Mackay family of Dundas, Ontario. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> is it ever, honestly, is it ever cool to write a book that would shred your family in public, or are there certain things that you just, unless your father perhaps was a murderer and, you know, there's no reputation left to salvage, should you just keep your mouth shut? What do you, what do you think about that? Well, it depends on what sibling you're talking to, because I'm the child of, of, I, I, I have three other siblings. So there's a few that I can talk about and be quite nasty about. Just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> no, it's not. It's not good form, really, to do this. I mean, um, uh, I know Harry. Harry has been very hesitant about getting these memoirs out. I know he's been hemming and hawing about um, actually going through, but it's ten million dollars dangling in front of his face, and he has a very expensive wife, a very rich wife, and he's basically going to keep up with her and the money that she's bringing in a relationship. So. He's basically off the, the royal rolls right now, so he's got to find ways of bringing in the big bucks. And sadly, though, he's he's sort of, you know, exposing um, the soap opera of the royal family, which is kind of a sad thing. Um, 
Because well, we don't know. I, I have we a don't... lot of I have sympathy for the guy. I think he's done a lot of good as a as a prince. He's you know the Invictus Games is a is a pretty good thing. Like yes, yeah. And he's he's done well for a prince. You know, you think of the the, the past. You know, second um, run up or the B team princes and. They've all gotten into trouble, you know, scandals and, you know, womanizing. You think back to the Regency era of King, the King Georges. There were, like, um, heirs to the throne and runners-up to the heirs to the throne who were horrible. And they were bad to their fathers and, and were not good. And they did far worse things than what Harry's doing right now. So I think some kind of leeway has to be given to the poor Prince Harry. Yeah, I, I, and we don't know. They haven't said they've they've really teased around it, and they haven't said what these things are that he's going to be saying, or what he's going to, what revelations he's going to expose, or mm-hmm. you know what what he's going to sh- talk about. But you know, uh, here's part of the. I mean, I'm going to be interested to see what he has to say. I'm not going to lie. I think that's probably what they're banking on. The difficult part about this is that. It kind of feels like I don't know that his family can respond. If if he says, you know, we heard that story that um, when uh, Megan talked about when I think it was with Oprah and said that someone in the royal family asked, "How dark is your child going to be?" Which was an, an yeah. allusion to some simmering racism within the royal family. Mm-hmm. If Prince Harry were to suddenly say, "You know what? That was my dad who said that." I don't know that King Charles is able to respond. And now, you know, that's a loaded thing that is just so destructive. I don't know. As I say, I just, I look at this and I think, I mean, maybe we shouldn't feel sorry for the royal family. Certainly they've, you know, they've got resources and they've, you know, they're in a, in a power position. I just, I I don't know. I, 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 I try to imagine that this was my family which is difficult because we're not the royal family, but I, I try to imagine it was my family and someone decided the dirty laundry from your family and every family has some, mm-hmm. right? We've all, you, you let down your hair, you let down your guard around your family and maybe, you know, you're a little less cautious with your words than you would be in public because you're, you're allowed to express ideas with your family. It's where you have your safe space. Mm-hmm. I just, I feel really almost icky about people exposing the goings on behind the closed doors of their family, different from business, different from anything else. It's, it's, it's also even more intriguing because they're based in the literati of Hollywood in America, a former colony. And it just so happens your family um, is, is the personification of constitutional monarchy for all for a big giant country in in Europe, Great Britain, and and all these Commonwealth countries, I mean, it's it's potentially very dangerous and embarrassing for um, for, for for a big um, form of government around the world. You know, we're we're a constitutional monarchy, and what he says could be devastating to the foundation of what we are as a country if it goes really far. It, it could have some serious ramifications. I don't think Harry is going to publish some kind of book that that is damaging to that in, in that respect. Yeah, we don't, don't know. I don't think he's going to go after his his father or anything like that. I think 
he might make a point about the institutional racism that we all hear about, and and is 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 this still a, in in existence to this day? And 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 that might be the point of the book, and 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 maybe we'll get something beneficial that way. But I don't think it's it's going to. Um, I think he's smart enough not to bring down the monarchy. Uh, all right. Well, let me ask you I'm one more thing that. then. Let me ask you one more thing about books. And I found this one to be just the, the absolute pinnacle of irony today. Uh, Penguin Random House has given Amy Coney Barrett, the Supreme Court Justice, a $2 million ad book deal uh, to write about her life and her experience. There are 550 people who are involved in the publishing industry that have written an open letter demanding that this publishing house retract that offer and not publish her book because she voted to overturn Roe v. Wade. Mm. I find this to be the absolute pinnacle of irony that in the publishing industry that should be the absolute bastion of free speech that anyone should be allowed to say what they need to say or what they want to say because we need people to have this, that it was people in the publishing industry, including a number of authors, who would say, no, no, because of a political position, you should be censored. I, 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 I maybe I, sh- I, I am stunned, even though I probably shouldn't be. It just seems amazing to me. It's, it's extraordinary that, and I'm sure she's not the first one to come out with a, a book as she's a Supreme Court justice. I'm sure it's, been, it's happened many times before. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I think, did she not bring out a book when she was? I believe Supreme she did, Court? yes. I mean, they, they, they're they're judges for life, so it's not like you can sit on your memoirs until you retire. You you do your memoirs and you die a Supreme Court justice, as far as I I know. Um, so it it is, you know, she. I think she's she's like any American. She has the freedom to express herself, and I don't know. Is she reaping the benefits of that book? Is that something that people are upset about? Maybe. No, no, no. They're entirely upset about her decision on abortion, and therefore she should not be allowed. The publishing well, house should not publish her book. No, that I, I would be more upset with her not giving the money to a charity or something like that. I mean, she's she's an established person, a, a member of the government and the the executive or the judicial branch. I would expect that. The proceeds of that might would go to some kind of cause other than her own pocket. That's what it would make me angry. But that would it would be any justice of the Supreme Court if they were just pocketing that money for themselves to enrich themselves. That's my thing. But mm. I think she's free to to do a memoir on whatever, however she comes on 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 a case. You know, it's it's interesting for historians to find this information out. Why why ban her from doing that? It's ridiculous to me. Well, it, it, it is to me. It, it's not just ridiculous to me. It's totally frightening that the people who should know best about free speech and freedom of expression are the ones who are screaming now for someone not to be able to have that. Because it's, I've said this a million different times, that it's fine when the pendulum has swung in your direction and you feel empowered to scream for people to be shut down or censored, but the pendulum always swings back. And I'm positive that when the pendulum swings back, they will be screaming very loudly if someone said their view should be censored because now things are on the other side. You always have to look at the big picture, not just where we are at this moment in time. 
I, I agree. And you may not um, agree with which, what her position is on abortion, but she is fully entitled to express herself. She's not promoting hate or anything. It's just, it's something that I think a, a lot of Americans and a lot of Canadians espouse are against abortion. And there's nothing illegal about having a stance like that. So it's this idea of clamping down is part of uh, clamping down on freedom of expression is a problem that is is becoming a bigger thing and it seems to be happening in our own uh, area as we we see recently. So you know this this, this kind of um, chilling effect is is something that should be not tolerated, whether it's That's, in the yeah. city or. You know, in the United States, affecting the Supreme Court. Yeah. Well, especially, especially if you're working in that industry. I mean, that that to me is the that would be like honestly, that would be like someone in the media anywhere mm-hmm. saying we really don't think that someone should be allowed to talk. It's it, it, it's it's antithetical to everything that you're supposed to stand for. Yeah, it really is. You're preaching to the choir, Scott. Well, I mean, I can assure you that if that that uh, both of us. Yeah. For those listening, both of us have uh, have experienced that. It's um, you know I, I I fully expect it, honestly, Graham, and I don't I don't even mind as much. I I kind I expect it from those who aren't in the publishing or media whatever industry. I kind of get that in some corners. I just don't expect it yeah. ever from people who work in that business. Yeah, it's outrageous. <laughs> That is Graham Mackay. Uh, you can see his cartoons all the time in the Hamilton Spectator. And as I said about an hour ago, if you want proof of how good Graham is at his job, just go look around at some other editorial cartoonists from this country and you will see how lucky we are to have him doing his work here in the city of Hamilton. Uh, Graham, always love having you on. Thanks for doing this today. Oh, thanks for having me, Scott. It's always a pleasure. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.